the amazing thing about music therapy and singing in particular is it has a large number of applications. So in addition to getting this full brain cross-hemispheric workout, singing also releases and regulates oxytocin, serotonin, melatonin, dopamine, endorphins. And so this means that it also has applications in things like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, anxiety, depression. It's great for pregnancy and prenatal care. It regulates cortisol and the cortisol is what regulates your stress response. So it's also helpful with hypertension and things like that. So there's a whole variety of, of healthcare conditions that singing can actually help with. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Music as medicine has long been put in the category of things that seem nice, but not like real medicine. But the world is changing, and companies like SyncFit, led by Rachel Francine, are rising to the opportunity to deliver digital therapeutics with a musical twist. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shamans. And I'm Lisa Soonan, and today's episode is brought to you by AARP Market Innovation, which works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. So, David. Yes, Lisa. We're going to talk about music therapy today. Great. So what's the music you listen to to get yourself in a better mood? Yeah, you know, I'm st- I, th- I still think I'm totally stuck in the 80s. Yeah. You know, like I, if I'm one of runners, like I love, you know, Bruce Springsteen and uh, I know it's so dated, right? Um, and uh, But mostly now it's like kind of like whatever the kids are listening to. So it's sort of interesting because... So you know, Hamilton, in other words. Hamilton 24-7, yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> For about me, you? I actually have this um, playlist called Cranky and Stressed, <laughs> which is what I listen to when I am cranky and stressed. And it's filled with like non-obvious things like Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie and, you know, stress-related songs. But it still it sounds like classic rock. It is pretty much classic <laughs> rock. Yeah, it is pretty cool. I think Rachel, Rachel Francine, who we'll have on here in a second, would tell you that the music that you listen to between the ages of 13 and 24 is that which you are stuck with for the rest of your life, basically, as the most valuable to you. Wow, that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So the whole idea of music as medicine has been around a while, but finally we're seeing more significant programs and even companies dedicated to making it mainstream. Rachel Francine, co-founder and CEO of Music Technologies, Inc., more commonly known as SingFit, has had this idea in her family since childhood. So Rachel, it seems like your career is the melting pot of your father's interest in music and entrepreneurship. Please do tell us about that. Sure. So, yeah, the the company Musical Health Technologies really goes back uh, to the 60s when my dad was studying opera in New York and uh, in basic training in New Jersey for for the Army. And he would sneak off base to go to his opera lessons. Um, But he says he was a lazy student and, and just never remembered the words. And in the in the opera, there's a guy who actually stands in this little pit with a hood over the sta- over him right near the stage, and uh, he'll go to the last. And it was always a he back then. He'll go to the the last few rehearsals, understand where the the singers are are weak in their libretto, and then he'll go to the performances and actually prompt them the words right before they need to sing them. And my dad, being a serial entrepreneur way before that term was ever coined just started thinking, why can't I have the opera prompter in the car with me um, to so that I can practice on my way? Um, and this idea <laughs> really stuck with him through 
you know, the 80s when karaoke came around and his mind oh, sort of I thought of you were going to say he invented karaoke. No, no. <laughs> he did not invent karaoke, but um, but he, we definitely, um, one of the serial entrepreneurship uh, endeavors that he had was we definitely had a karaoke business in the 80s. So that was one of my first jobs was doing karaoke shows in high school, the first ones in, in uh, Philadelphia, actually. Um, but we say that essentially... My dad socially and genetically engineered my brother and I to <laughs> take his dream forward. And separately, I went into technology and, and innovation. And my brother, Andy, became a music therapist. And it just sort of came full circle because what Andy realized during his music therapy training was that this strange prompting idea that dad was always pulling us into was actually an evidence-based music therapy technique. And so that was sort of the genesis of, of us coming together. So that exposure to entrepreneurship, is that, you know, I guess you guys used to tell me you guys had a beanbag factory and a trash to steam plant and the karaoke business and all yes. kinds of interesting things. Did that make entrepreneurship for you seem less risky? It, it, exactly. I mean, people people will say things to me like it's brave to start your own business or brave to be an entrepreneur. And for me, it it is like breathing. I don't really, the idea of going into a job and doing the same thing every day and walking in someone else's footsteps, um, that to me is terrifying. But going out and starting something new, that to me is, is completely exciting and not scary at all. That's awesome. Um, so you started out in theater. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I went to a creative and performing arts high school. I did. Oh, wow. I did. It was like yes. fame? Were you like, it, it was like fame. It, I mean, in its own weird way, because it was, you know, a strange sort of school, but but it was like so fame. So pre-glee? P- very pre-glee. <laughs> very pre-glee. But it didn't turn you on, it seems. You went straight into the world of tech from there. Yeah. I mean, what I what I learned in, in, in theater, which I think was, was the foundation lesson, was how do you create something out of nothing? Um, and that was really interesting to me. Um, so more the, the behind the scenes, the production side of it was what ended up really interesting me. And then it took me a little while to find my footing. I spent some, I, I spent most of my time in undergraduate in college uh, at the radio station. I ran the radio oh, station cool. there, and um, and and so that sort of got me into more doing media and tech, and and that was my transference into into that sort of space. Well, so what kind of what kind of theater though did you do? Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> what was your breakout performance? My breakout performance was actually as the Mother Superior and Agnes of God oh, at, at 16 years old. Like, they had us doing pretty, pretty stuff. super intense stuff. And I will tell you that I did win the, the Best Actress Award at the Bucks County Playhouse wow. Theater Festival for that. Impressive. So wow. I, I, that, I don't think I have the trophy for that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I got lost in a move. But, but that was my breakout. That was my breakout performance. No, and people do talk about parallels between between sort of perform, you know, sort of what you need as, as a leader mm-hmm. um, to sort of carry yourself and to present yourself. Have you found there to be parallels? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think there's I think there's a couple things there. One is what you're talking about with um, just being comfortable in front of a crowd and being able to get up in front of ten people, a hundred people, a thousand people, and tell your story. And that's the other thing about having a business and, and entrepreneurship and and doing things like this is you have to be a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the keys to really engage people in what you're doing. Um, so I think that's that's one of the things. And then I think acting in theater also is a is a lesson in it's a forced lesson in empathy. 
essentially, and understanding what other people are thinking and feeling and and what other people's motivations are. Um, Because I think to be a good leader, you need to be empathetic and and understand. It's so funny because people often think of actors or or performances as so outward and and so um, extroverted, but it Mm -hmm. sounds like in order to do it well, you have to really inhabit the characters who you're portraying. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But performing never really appealed to me because, again, doing it the, the figuring out the character was fun, but the doing the character like 27 times in a row was boring. So, <laughs> so it sounds like you almost wanted to be more of a Sam Shepard where you write your own play. Exactly, exactly. I do like to have control, that is true. So you kind of did, right? You yeah. left the theater and you joined the, the beginning of the internet. I did. Uh, def- uh, Interwebs, please. Yeah, yeah. you know, as, as invented by Al Gore. And you were at companies like City Search, mm-hmm. which was the Yelp of the, you know. Wow, that's very classic. Yeah. Yeah. CollegeStune.com with the yeah. precursor to Facebook in many ways. What did you see as the promise of the internet at that time? But what year was this? Could you just, yeah. just settle? settle yeah, yeah so, so City Search was 1996 when I started at City Search. So really, we had to explain when you would call people up and say, hey, I'm working for this city guide that's on the internet. People would say, what's the internet? Mm-hmm. And and you had, to, you had to do a really good job of trying to explain exactly what the kind internet of was to people. It's only 20 years ago. It's only 20 years ago. But I remember that ago. as well. Yeah. I remember um, thinking, why would anybody have a website? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what the people who worked with us, the sales folks who, went, who worked with us, had to go out and convince people, uh, you know, here's, here's why you need one. Why did you believe in it? What was the promise for you? What, and how has that changed or has it? I mean, it, it hasn't. It, it is a good question. And for me, it, it, you know, City Search, when it started, the, the, their catchphrase was your whole city at one address. And the, the idea of City Search at the beginning was actually very community-based. They were going to have, when are the Little League baseball games and when are your church services? I was in Nashville, so church was a big thing. Um, but you know, the idea was, here's a way that we can pull community together. And so for me, that has always been the promise of the internet, was to give people people more access, people more chances. Um, one company that you, you didn't mention there was <coughs> one called Anti.com, and Anti was a precursor to YouTube and the Greenlight Project and really the democratization of filmmaking. And it was this idea, I mean, it seems silly now, right, that you can pick up a camera and make your own movie and put it out there and and get a whole career going that way. But that didn't exist in 1999 when I was doing that. We actually had to go out. We took out trucks that had filmmakers on them and all this digital filmmaking equipment and sent them to five cities and taught people how to do digital filmmaking so we could have content because people just weren't doing it on their own. As opposed to the room we are sitting in now with four GoPros facing Ex- exactly, us. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, but mean, you were the, really the, early on this. I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, and you really had sort of in. It, do you think it was from from how you grew up was just sort of the, the sort of being tech you know, technophilic, I guess? Yeah, I had a friend once ask me how I knew what to do when I go to conferences or, or go to things like the Consumer Electronics Show. And I said, you know, when we went when we went on vacation as kids, we went to the Consumer Electronics Show. <laughs> I've been going to the Consumer Electronics Show since I'm 16 years Back old. Back when it used to be with the Porn Movie Awards. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and actually, my first, my very first conference was the Video Software Dealers Association, which was a job even before the internet, and they were having the Porn Awards at the same time. Excellent. I was, I was like 22. I was a little overwhelmed, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think about... Did you think then about how music would fit into the world? I know Andy, your brother, he, yeah. your co-founder and, and who jointly leads the business with yeah. you, 
kind of started this transition back to the music thing. Yes. And, you know, you told me a story about um, his friend Mm -hmm. and and how that sort of led to the the intersection of the technology, the opera, the music, Music, the the karaoke, all of that into one. Can you maybe tell us about that? Sure. So so Andy, who's my brother, he um, he would tell you that in in high school he was a jock. You know, that's what he liked to do was was play sports. But um, there was a a, a really tragic accident that actually ended up turning out okay, where a friend of his um, fell into a coma. Um, and Andy had, um, they had had sort of this pickup band to, I say, to get girls. I don't know if Andy would like that, but they... As and opposed they would, to forming a band, why? Exactly, <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the thing. And so they had this little pickup band that they would play, and... and well, this do you remember the name of the band? was Speck of Life, I think is what it was called. I just want to know yeah. for next time I see Andy. Yeah, I, if, <laughs> I, if I'm right about that, I, I, I feel good about my memory. And... Um, and so Sean, who was in the band, had an accident. He fell into a coma, and Andy was just learning how to play guitar. And so um, we were all kind of sick of hearing him play the same four Elvis songs. And he read that um, people in comas need stimulation, so he would sneak into the ICU and play the guitar. And Sean came out of this coma singing uh, Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here with Andy, which they had uh, played in the band together. And so he continued to do that as Sean recovered. Wow. You know, it's a pretty it's a pretty crazy story. And, and, and then Andy would go to the rehab hospital. We would go to visit him there. And Andy would play these the guitar. And, and people would come from all over the, the hospital to sit and sing with Andy. And someone at the hospital said, um, uh, you know, you know, there's this thing called music therapy. And I think you should check it out. And so Andy did. And, and he went to school for music therapy. And in that, found that this crazy idea of dads with the prompting is actually an evidence-based music therapy technique that music therapists and speech therapists have been using for years. And, you know, we we would do some sort of interesting little experiments with it, but it, it took a while for technology to catch I'm up with us. I'm kind of interested yeah. in hearing, as Lisa would imagine, about some of the evidence about it, because when you want to yeah. hear about it, I mean, my top of mind association is, you know, the airplane movie, you know? The, you ever see, you know, the air, you know, the Zuckerberg? The movie you know, Airplane? You know, I gave my love it. <laughs> the... Uh, Anyway, um, <laughs> keeper J. Job. You know what? That's actually I, I, I will. No, you know what? That, actually, that was from Animal House. But the airplane movie with with, with the, the the they're playing the the guitar for the person, the kid on the plane. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. but but you know, it seemed it always seemed sort of like as Lisa said in her introduction, a nice thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't have associated it as having an evidence base. Is that right? Yeah. So a, a really good popular example of this is Gabriella Giffords. So when the congresswoman had left hemisphere brain trauma, what happens there is um, speech mostly takes place on the left side of your brain. So when you get left hemisphere brain trauma, it typically wipes out your ability to speak. However, singing actually takes place in your entire brain, and it utilizes redundant pathways for that to happen because when you're singing, you're using um, you know all these different parts of your brain. And so what a music therapist in general will do is – because even though you can't speak, you can sing, they will do this technique where um, what happened with Gabriella Giffords is her music therapist would have a guitar, and she, like me, Tom Petty is her favorite as well. So they would play the guitar and then feed the words to you right before you need to sing them. Huh. And what happens is through the singing, 
it utilizes brain plasticity to actually rewire where speech takes place in the brain. And to this day, uh, Gabriella Giffords credits her speech recovery with this technique. The challenge is, and one of the reasons that we started the company, is because there's only 6,000 music therapists in the country. So not, you know, a very limited people have, have access to this kind of so, kind it, of so it's targeting specifically people who have certain types of brain injuries. So that's so th- the amazing thing about about music therapy and singing in particular is it has it has a large number of applications. So in addition to getting this full brain cross hemispheric workout that's um, that's that's incredibly transformative with things like brain injuries or speech therapy, singing also uh, releases and regulates oxytocin, serotonin, melatonin, dopamine. Um, uh, endorphins, and so this means that it also has applications in things like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, it, it anxiety, depression. Um, it's great for pregnancy and prenatal care. It can be used as um, it regulates cortisol, and the cortisol is what regulates your stress response. So it's also helpful with hypertension and things like that. So there's a whole variety of of healthcare conditions that singing can actually help with. There's a pretty healthy body of research around this. Too. There this is. is not just it's not just us. It's not yeah. theoretical. I mean, if people are looking for more information on this, I would point them to doc, uh, Dr. Gottfried Schlag out of Harvard. Um, he's done fMRI studies, which actually show that you can increase the mass of the Broca's area of the brain through singing and uh, vocal and rhythmic activities. But in terms of, um, you know, is this like, oh, singing makes people happier? Mm-hmm. Or is it, you know, because when you think about it, if it was a, if it was a pharmacy, if it was a behavioral intervention, mm-hmm. you'd have controls, you'd have appropriate, you know, you'd tonal versus atonal maybe for mm-hmm. music, or you'd have some type of, uh, you know, I, I'd be, it, it's sort of interesting to me the idea that this has been, or to know that how this has been um systematically studied. studied. So the, one of the big challenges with music as medicine is is up until about 20 years ago, um, you know, music therapists were really the ones doing this work, and they weren't necessarily doing great, you know, IRB, university-validated studies about it. But about 20 years ago, when the fMRI, uh, uh, you know, technology came into being and we could really look into the brain and see what was happening, that's when the neurologists have gotten into it. So it's really only been in the past 20 years that a really uh, deep body of, of very validated research is coming out about it. But now it's just coming out like gangbusters. And the uh, Kennedy Center is actually starting a new big initiative on music in the brain now. So my expectation is, is that the, the research and the studies are going to come out more fast yeah, I just and furious. Was at, uh, I was at the Aspen Institute uh, a couple weeks wow, ago. Wow, so that sounds super prestigious. <laughs> oh, shut up. And um, one of the best segments I saw in the meeting I was at was one where Walter Isaacson, who's the CEO of Aspen Institute, was interviewing John Batiste, who's the band leader for uh, Stephen Colbert, and also an amazing jazz musician in, in, in every respect. Yeah. And he has helped start at Mount Sinai Medical Center a music therapy program, um, which apparently is, is quite fascinating. So it seems to me like, you know, and I know there are many, many hospitals that in, in have musical therapy programs yes. within them. And I think there seems to be a, a growing interest in this, which I think makes absolute sense. I mean, and it's a non-invasive, you know, digital therapeutic, right? Like exactly. so many other things will just never been called that, you know, until probably just that minute. Um 
you were, you know, the evolution of you from the sort of the tech world to coming to this yeah. thing was really about the search for meaning, as I recall. It, 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 it was, because what I found when I worked in technology is that you would start out working for this is your whole community at one address, and you end up selling tickets for Ticketmaster after in the weird digital economy, City Search bought Ticketmaster online. And for me, it just seemed to not deliver on the promise of what technology could really do. So I went back to school and I got a master's degree in something called future studies, which is also called strategic foresight. And it's the idea that to make really transformative change, you have to look at least 10 years out. And that's what I wanted to do. Because as you mentioned, like I was always working at these, at these companies that were a little bit before their time. So I wanted to figure out how do I really catch that wave, but also catch it in a way that can have um, quadruple bottom line effects that can not only make just as good um, revenue and produce great revenue for investors, but also change um, the social fabric, um, help with the environment, and do it in a way that's transformative rather than incremental, because I think we're up against some really big hurdles. So the time for incremental change is, is over. And so I really want to make companies that, that do good. As Let me ask you kind of the, the, the question from the other end of it. Yeah. Um, it's it, what, what you're describing, what's the sort of either the IP or the, you know, if you know, how is it, if like, someone might say, you know what, I completely endorse this, it sounds like a great idea, mm-hmm. I will give my patients access to their iPhone or whatever, right. you know, to Spotify while they're in the hospital. Yeah. I mean, I'm being facetious. Sure, sure. But in other words, what's, what's, different? what's the sort of the secret sauce or, or from a business? In other words, you can say, it seems like a great a do-good initiative. It seems like it makes a lot of sense. It's making the world a better place. Yeah. But how is it a business? Oh, well, I mean, and, and the first tenet of all of this, of all this quadruple bottom line economics, is you have to be able to compete on a purely financial realm. You have to be able to make um, as good or better revenues than the other people in your space. From a business perspective and the IP, what you're talking about is we, we consider ourselves sort of a duck on a pond. It looks really easy on top, but underneath there's a lot going on. And so so first what we have to do is we do, it's not there's a difference between passive music listening and active music making. So passive music making you're using a very small part of your brain and it really depends on your personal connection with that music for it to have any kind of biochemical effect on you. So um, so you can't just turn on the radio for somebody and expect them to be able to regain their speech after traumatic brain injury. But when you are using active music making it's, it's automatically um, engaging your entire physiological system. So, so one really important distinction about what we do is that it's active versus passive okay. music making. And, you, and in a sense, speaking of personalized medicine, Lisa, it sounds like it's almost intrinsically personalized because it's customized to their particular musical taste and preference. Exactly. And so then what we did <coughs> is we first created an app that that digitized that lyric prompting process. So that in and of itself, we were on a on a on a, on a different unnamed podcast, but it was more music oriented, and we were describing sort of the music licensing and the music manipulation and all of the stuff that we have to do in order to just you get can the name app the podcast, ready. By the way, we're actually really supportive of the whole community. You're really supportive of the whole community. I think it's called Twenty One Hertz. Cool. And um, 
And so when I got through all of that, the guy was like, wow, that's a that's a lot to do. Yeah. And I was like, it is it yeah, is a lot to do. Management and it's I mean, all the, the rest. And the music industry is, is incredibly difficult. Probably I thought the FDA was going to be my big challenge. It's it's the music <laughs> industry that gives me more gray hairs. And so um, and so so there's that part of it. That's one thing that we do. But the but the really special sauce around this is is really comes out of Andy's head, right? So what are the best practices? If you're looking to um, decrease agitation in somebody with dementia or you're looking to increase speech or socialization in somebody with dementia versus, let's say, uh, increase breathing capacity for somebody with COPD or get a 26-year-old millennial mom to sing, those are different applications. And so what we do is we wrap the tech in different protocols and programming so that it can actually attain very specific clinical goals for each one of those different kinds of medical challenges. And you package this and sell it to assisted living homes mm-hmm. because I think the way the business evolved ultimately into a business was to focus first and currently on the senior market and dementia and Alzheimer's and things of that nature. Exactly, exactly. And so the the sort of third leg of that stool is we also train people. And so we have online training that we do um, by the end of by the end of September, um, due to a new big nationwide deal that we've signed, we'll have trained over 1,600 people how to implement music as medicine inside senior living communities, adult day programs, skilled nursing centers, and hospitals. But, but again, um, uh, you're able to, you know, the idea when you're saying, like, you know, customize it to the level of the specific problem, what goes through my mind is, you know, some of the, you know, perspective I've had, even on, you know, genetics, critical perspective, yeah. where people say, oh, give us your genes and we'll customize your exercise program and you'll yeah. customize your, 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 your diet. And there isn't the evidence base almost in general, almost invariably to do that. And people have really, so, you know, on genetics, have yeah. completely overpromised that. And I'm curious if there really is the evidence base to say, oh, we can, we can give you music therapy to distinguish between whether it's a breathing problem, whether it, 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 it's, it's an agitation problem, mm-hmm. that, you can, that the evidence base exists to customize to that level. I wouldn't have appreciated that. Yeah. Oh, oh definitely. I mean, there's a there's hundred years of, of anecdotal evidence just within the music therapy industry in general. Again, they weren't the best at, at, at quantifying that in studies, but you can see that across multiple kinds. And you can of- customize whether it's an equi- like, oh, if, if this person is agitated, I mean, what would be like? An, so, so a pro- yeah. Can you give an example yeah, so, of a protocol? So, so we're actually coming out in. So, so when we do our group sessions, which is what we do essentially with um, in these senior living communities, in with that, people with, with people of Alzheimer's and all along that scale. So, mm-hmm. you know, we are also in independent living and assisted living. There, and one of the reasons, strategic reasons, that we went into seniors is because you can sort of, there were only like six radio stations, right? So so there's a big chunk of the American songbook that we know. If we do these songs in general, you're going to be able to get a group of people engaged. And we go out and we test those songs as well. So we have several test beds and, and every What's song goes through What's the most popular song that resonates for these folks? Right now, um, this, when the Saints Go Marching In is actually the number the number one hit parade of, of Sing Which was probably very popular when they were between when they were, 14 <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And for a lot of people, right, along that age spectrum. So that's a group process. But when we're coming out um, with a one-to-one protocol for home health agencies and home care agencies, as well as what I call love economy caregivers, and with that, it's really dependent on what is somebody's preferred 
music. And so we have protocols that are based on on music therapy protocols and, and based on sort of Andy's creativity and knowledge, as well as, you know, eventually getting into some artificial intelligence and machine learning that can help us pick out what is that person's preferred music. And then you use that person's preferred music because it's because that's what gets the engagement. And as we know, compliance is a huge thing in healthcare, just getting somebody to do it. So whereas other companies are just trying their hardest to get somebody to take a pill or do an exercise, we get to go, well, we know that, you know, you're a big fan of Frank Sinatra. How about a little Frank Sinatra? And so you can customize it that way through preference. Uh, What's through the preference. What do you see when, when you play this music for people? Well, when, we, when people sing, um, you see a lot of different things. So some of the evidence we get back is um, between a 42 and 82% elevation in mood. This is for people with dementia. Um, and so often there's, there are, uh, you know, depression, there's depression around. For people with dementia, we see reduced agitation. We see reduced wandering. We see increased speech, uh, increased socialization, and then also a 40% reduction in the need for anti-anxiety medications. Wow. I should start singing more often. Yeah. And it and it, it's in the, to, to uh, anticipate Lisa's, I'm sure, snide observation. Um, <laughs> in a, it's independent of one's intrinsic actual skill. In other words, as Lisa points out, as my kids actually, speaking of Hamilton, they won't let me sing it because yeah. um, uh, <laughs> true can't carry a tone, tune for the life of me. I love singing, but I'm yeah. terrible at it. But do either of those factors, either your ability to sing or how much you like it? Because won't there be some people who actually just don't like, you know, have di- everyone has a different relationship with music. Or is yeah. it one of those things yeah. where everyone loves it? Well, mo- so a lot of people had some awful teacher somewhere down the line who told them they couldn't sing. And that affects people greatly. But in general, one of the things that I'm the most proud of about the product is the feedback. And we're in over 400 senior living communities now. And the most consistent feedback or one of the most pieces of consistent feedback we get is this this person, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Mrs. Smith, never participates in anything. Wow. But we did what you said because we are a little bit of a control freak in, in how this is actually implemented. We put them, because they were a little hard of hearing, we put them in the in the chair near the speaker and we didn't force them to sing and we did all this. And, and they said we were just incredibly surprised that this guy just who never does anything, who said he didn't like music, was singing. And at that, at that particular moment, his family was there. And that's another thing that this does, especially for people with dementia and their families, is it brings back a, a connection that they're able to see their loved one filled with joy and, and participating and engaging. So for them, that's a big deal. So do you think uh, SingFit or other programs similar to mm-hmm. it, if there were, can become big business? Can they be taken as seriously as pharmaceutical interventions? Yes. I mean, that's the plan. And and we're just bringing on, I'm really happy to say, uh, a a new person who's going to head up our research team. And we're doing more research with like the Thrive Center in in Kentucky to really prove how this works. And for us, we really don't consider other musical interventions our our competition. We consider pharmaceutical companies our, our competition. That's great. You know, it's um, it's interesting. You know, in terms of in the category of confess your unpopular opinion, um, and to and to try to keep up with your Aspen Ideas Festival. Um, <laughs> Good luck. When, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, when I was growing up, we uh, I was fortunate enough to meet a couple of these are these 
actually my folks were invited, but these these Renaissance weekend things, right. not the Renaissance fairs. That was separate. Um, now you know this is how all these all these sort of like well known people and they sort of do stuff. Um, you know, like smart. You know, probably precede or, or pre, uh, anyway. Um, but one of the things they would have at the end of it is they actually sort of would have optional this sort of sing along where people would sort of go. Someone would be at the piano, and it was like you would might think it was like the hokiest thing. You would think it was the hokiest thing in the world. My my my, my wife would be mortified if she'd actually w- had to attend. But um, <laughs> but but you know, people would be able to play American you know Americana or or or, right. or Sandra Martino or whatever it is, and everyone would be gathered around the piano and singing it. And I love that. I thought it was just one of the coolest, most up, just uplifting, engaging experiences, and and you know, and even remembering that. I, I mean, it's really one of the happiest things I can I can sort of be associated with. So I can imagine if you're able to elicit some of that and bring part of that to people in sort of a, a customized way, how wonderful that must be. It, it is, and and if I may, what what you were experiencing there from a neurochemical point of view is is something called oxytocin. So oxytocin is that bonding chemical. Mothers get it a lot when they're pregnant. We eat it. Uh, we get it when we eat chocolate, and it's really what bonds people together. And singing is one of the very few ways to actually produce oxytocin that isn't an adult-only activity. So prescribing <laughs> chocolate music is probably far better than prescribing statins and uh, Ex- exactly God knows what else. Yeah, yeah we're, electroshock we're, therapy. Exactly. Well, that is very encouraging and upbeat to, to, to close to. So I'm going to ask you if you were getting, you know, therapy through SyncFit, what yeah. would be the song that you'd want to hear? Oh, wow. Um, what would be the song that I would want to hear? Maybe American Girl by Tom Petty. Nice. Very yeah. nice. David, <laughs> what about you? You got a song? Uh, I, I, a song is always Born to Run. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go with Bad to the Bone myself. Uh, All right. It's great having you, you here, Rachel. Such a pleasure and so nice to hear about something that has such a positive connotation. Yeah, thank you both so much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Today's guest, Rachel Francine, was speaking to us today from Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Wow, that was such an interesting show, Lisa, don't you think? <laughs> I agree. Well, I mean, I, bel- I, I know for me that when I listen to music, when I'm in a bad mood, for instance, I feel better. Now, if you could think about a way to program it intentionally to make me sing or do something that would actually enhance that, I believe that. I fundamentally believe that. Right, right. No, I love the idea of what it's trying to do. I think when things are reduced to, oh, this is the good, you know, trained as an endocrinologist, I'm a little skeptical of the, this is the one hormone that makes it magically happen. So I don't, you know, oh, if you play the the right chord, you get more of this magical chemical. I, I don't believe it at that level of reduction, you know, that reductionism, but I really do think that the idea of accessing this this whole dimension is uh, potentially incredibly therapeutic for people. I would encourage listeners to go to the website for SyncFit because there are some videos that you can see patients experiencing it. People who haven't talked in ages and now they're singing and smiling. It's really quite uh, mesmerizing to see. It's really worth the visit. That sounds great. Um, all right. Well, you can follow Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com as well as on the Timmerman Report. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. Uh, please review us, rate us, tell us we're worthy on iTunes. We are grateful to AARP for sponsoring this episode of Tectonics. AARP's market innovation team works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. Lock on. Yo. Yo.